You join me in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2, we are looking at verses 12 through 17 this morning in the Blue ESV Bible. You can find these verses on page 1029. 1029. The title of our sermon this morning is Pergamum, Repentance. And our key words for worshipers in training are repent, deny, and stumbling. One of my favorite men from church history, as many of you probably know, is John Bunyan. He's the author of The Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan is a fascinating man. Some of you know his story. He had an incredible imagination. He had a wonderful gift with words. He had an immovable and steadfast faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Bunyan wasn't always that way. Interestingly, Bunyan was... Never a drunkard or a fighter, but he was an avid unbeliever nonetheless. One biographer writes this about John Bunyan. He says, The thing that gave Bunyan any notoriety in the days of his ungodliness, and which made him afterwards to appear to himself such a monster of iniquity, was the energy which he put into all his doings. He had a zeal for idle play and an enthusiasm in mischief which were the perverse manifestations of a forceful character. He, was, he very quickly became the chief instigator in his youth. He led in all manner of idle activities among the boys. However, as one other biographer explains, the only restraining influence of which he then felt was the power of terror. His days were often gloomy, through forebodings of wrath to come, and his nights were scared with visions, which the boisterous diversions and adventures of his waking days could not always dispel. He would dream that the last day had come and that the quaking earth was opening its mouth to let him down to hell, or he would find himself in the grasp of fiends who were dragging him powerlessly away. But these influences did not extend beyond the period of his boyhood, and he became hardened to where he no longer had these thoughts of hell. He almost was past feeling in his older days, as he would say. He several times escaped death in remarkable providential manners, but this goodness of God failed once again to lead him to repentance. He married at an early age. It appears that his wife was the daughter of a very godly man. When she got married, he gave her two small books that he left her on his deathbed as her only legacy. These were The Plain Man's Pathway to Heaven and another book called The Practice of Piety. And these books, uh, young John Bunyan read, and they were the means of creating within him a desire to reform his godless life. So he attended church twice a day regularly. He read the responses of all the prayer books he sang. He saw the rest of the congregation doing things, and so he went right along with them. So, so thoroughly did he fall under the blinding influence of superstition that one writer explained, had he seen a priest in the streets, though never so sordid and debauched in his life, his spirit would fall under him, and he could have lain down at the feet of such and been trampled upon by them. Their name, their garb, their work did so intoxicate and bewitch him. But the ritualism was, of course, 
powerless either to reach his heart or to change his life. He continued in his old course of sin and blasphemy even while claiming to be a man transformed by God. One Lord's Day, in the midst of his usual afternoon activities, a voice he heard as if from heaven seemed to say, Wilt thou leave thy sins and go to heaven or have thy sins and go to hell? His arm, biographer writes, which was about to strike a ball, was arrested and looking up to heaven, it seemed as if the Lord Jesus was looking down on him in remonstrance and deep displeasure. And at the same time, the conviction flashed across him that he had sinned so long that repentance was now too late. He thought, my state is surely miserable. Miserable if I leave my sins and but miserable if I follow them. I can but be damned, and if I must be so, I had as good be damned for many sins as few. So fully was Bunyan persuaded that salvation was far from him and nearly impossible at this point that he deliberately decided to have his fill on the pleasures of sin while life should last and then suffer forever the fearful consequences. And so for a month or more, he went on in resolute sinning. One day, he was standing by a neighbor's window on the outside, and she was on the inside, and he carried on in his regular manner of sinful speech, cursing and swearing, and in his words, playing the madman after his wanton manner. I love that language. A woman of the town protested that he made her tremble. She heard him on the inside and she said it made her tremble to hear him and that truly he was the ungodliest fellow for swearing that she had ever heard in all of her life quite enough to ruin all of the youth of the entire town. Now the woman herself was a notoriously immoral character and so severe a reproof from so strange an accuser had a singular effect on John Bunyan's mind. He was silenced in that moment. He blushed before God, and as he stood there hanging his head, he wished with all of his heart that he were a little child again and that his father might teach him how to speak without profanity. For he thought his bad habit was so much a part of his speech now that any kind of transformation was out of question. And from that day, he ceased all manner of Swearing his whole outward life was so reformed that his fellow townsmen wondered what had happened to him. He was diligent to read his Bible every day. He became greatly interested in the history of the Scriptures. But you see, that was only another self-made attempt by John Bunyan. This time, not the ritualism of religion, but by legalism. He said, I did set the commandments before me for my own way to heaven. Which commandments I did also strive to keep, and as I thought, did keep them pretty well sometimes, and thus I should have comfort, yet now and then should break one, and so afflict my conscience. But then I should repent, and say I was sorry for it, and promise God to do better next time, and then get help again, for then I thought I pleased God as well as any man in England. And here's the part I want all of us to hear. He says, thus I continued about a year, 
All which time our neighbors did take me to be a very godly man, a new and religious man, and did marvel much to see such great and famous alteration in my life and manners. And indeed, so it was, though I knew not Christ, nor grace, nor faith, nor hope. Now, of course, the story goes on and eventually... John Bunyan was regenerated and lived a very fruitful and meaningful life unto God. But I wanted to highlight his early experience because what we see in Bunyan is very often the reality in the lives of people that we know. Perhaps it's the life of someone sitting here this morning, or perhaps it was your experience prior to the Lord changing your heart. And what does all this look like? It looks like living a life whereby there really is no difference between the way that you think and what you love and what you're entertained by and how you go on obtaining these things. And while there may be some outward indicators of conformity, it really is very evident that no true regeneration has actually taken place. And and I'm certain that during the time of either being enamored with ritual or entrenched in this legalistic conformity, that if anyone would have ever said anything about the Lord Jesus or about Christians that was negative, John Bunyan would have jumped to defend the Lord. But by his own words in life, there was no holding back. Have you ever known a person like that? A person who claims to know the Lord Jesus, who claims to be a Christian, whenever anything is said about Christians, their first response is to jump up and shout injustice, and yet their life, their life shows no indication of any difference between them and the rest of the world. I think it's actually quite a common thing today. I see many people who have assumed that being an American conservative is the same as being a Christian. And so defending the name of Jesus is what we do. And defending Christian ideas and principles is what we do. But in reality, for many people, Christianity is just an idea. It's just something they profess. And yet there's very little about their lives that would indicate that they've been transformed by the truth of the gospel. They're happy to stand and say, do not say anything bad about Jesus or about Christianity, but are very unwilling to pay Christ allegiance with their lives. So much so that, like Bunyan, they could make the proverbial sailor blush. And as we continue in our series, looking at Jesus' letters to the churches in Asia Minor this morning in the book of Revelation, we are in the third letter of seven. It's written to the church of Pergamum. And the church in Pergamum is one that Jesus commends for preserving its witness in the midst of persecution that had come upon them. However, he likewise condemns them for a very permissive spirit and allowing idolatry and compromise in their midst. And so we see him exhorting them to repentance so that in the end they not be condemned, but that they have true communion with God. In other words, Christ is telling them, you are happy to stand up for me and to back down my enemies in the face of persecution, but your lives and the manner in which you're going about things in your church are no different than the lives of those people who are attacking you. You must repent. 
That's a strong and sober warning this morning as we read. So let's look together in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, for a very long time, Pergamum, the city of Pergamum, was the place of the central government of Asia Minor. It was the royal city of ancient dynasties. Then when Rome took over, they moved all of the central power to the city of Ephesus. But just imagine, if you will, the federal government of the United States being moved from Washington, D.C. to Atlanta or Oklahoma City or something like that. Washington, D.C. would continue to have a certain mentality, a certain way about it for many generations to come. And that's precisely what happened in Pergamum. It was, for all intents and purposes, a government town in terms of outlook, in terms of its stance, in terms of people's devotion to the state, in terms of their loyalty to the centralized government. And so, with that being the case, you have a people who are all very politically minded, And that brings with it compromise, it brings negotiation, it brings an overall mindset of dependence upon earthly dominions and rulers. So that's the climate in Pergamum. That's the environment we're stepping into as we think about that church this morning. Now the letter begins with Jesus describing himself as him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Back in chapter 1, in verse 16, it says, also referring to Christ, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Now, the imagery is based on what we see in Isaiah, chapters 11 and 49, and it's telling of an end times judge who's fulfilling all of the messianic expectations of the old covenant. And in fact, if you see this refer- you, you will see this reference one more time if you read on in Revelation in chapter 19 and verse 15. Well, what's the point of what he's doing here? Well, the Christians in Asia are to understand that Jesus will do battle. But he's not going to just do battle only against evil nations, but he's going to do battle against those so-called churches that have compromised the faith. So we have this description that is this overarching theme in the letter here. Christ standing over the church as it's compromising, as a threatening judge when they are, when they are negotiating with evil, when they are allowing worldliness. So what comes from that in the church in Pergamum is, a com, uh, is, a, is the church being commended by Jesus, but they also get a rebuke from Jesus 
And then in the end, they have a promise from Jesus. So let's look at our first point, which is Jesus, his, his commendation for the church. He tells them in verse 13 to continue to stand for the faith even in the days of persecution. Now, given what I said about Pergamum being the former center of government, you might assume that's what Jesus means when he says that's where Satan's throne is. The two go very well together. But Pergamum was also the center of several other things, emperor worship being one of them. But most likely, Jesus is referencing the temple of Asclepius, And if you know anything about your Greek mythology, Asclepius was uh, the god of physicians. He was the god who healed the sick and revived the dead. He was believed to have been a man who died but came to life again as a god because of all of the wonderful things he did as a healer, as a man. Now, his staff, and you'll recognize this, the staff that he carried was sort of a, a walking stick, but it had a serpent that wrapped around it. And if you look at all the statues of him, you would see this serpent wrapped around. And the reason you'll recognize it is because his staff with the serpent wrapped around it is the symbol today that is used by the American Cancer Society. And that's all tied up in Asclepius, the the supposed god of healing. Now, I'm not suggesting that the American Cancer Society has pagan ties today, but that's where the imagery comes from. So think about that, though. You have these early first century Christians, and consider the imagery of a serpent in the biblical storyline. It's not a good one, is it? So you have all these people coming to Pergamum to worship at the temple of one who is befriending the serpent. So what does that look like? Well, it's very clear to us, isn't it? For believers in the first century, inevitably, the popularity of this temple was bound up with the devil himself the serpent. Now beyond this, it is speculation as to why the Christians were facing persecution and how all of that relates to this temple. It probably has something to do with what we saw last week and their unwillingness to pay homage to the local God. And so whatever it was, it had aroused enough trouble for the Christians that they faced Already one outbreak of persecution to where at least one Christian had died, as Jesus mentions in the text. But it's not hard to imagine in that atmosphere. It would be very difficult for Christians to maintain a high profile about their faith without also running into conflict with those who are committed to the officially accepted pagan religions, behind all of which Satan stands as king. In most Greek uh, cities, the citizens were typically expected to sacrifice to the gods. And it was this long-honored tradition in each local area that before all else, you sacrifice to the gods. You light incense, you bring food, whatever was expected to that particular god. And all of this came even before you paid homage to Caesar. Now, when Christians were brought up on charges about not making the sacrifice to the emperor, it was because they had first refused 
to honor and sacrifice to whatever the venerated God was. And so, consequently, they were called to account by the Roman authorities. So you have some form of persecution going on here. And Jesus commends the church, and he tells them, you hold fast to my name, you do not deny the faith, even when Antipas, my most faithful witness, was killed among you where Satan dwells. So we know at least one believer stood faithful on to death. And the church stood up and said, we're not backing down here. We are Christians. They stood in the faith despite the circumstances and Jesus was pleased with that. And you know, we have probably a bit of a difficulty imagining this because of where we live and how we live. Not just in the West, not just in America, but in the South. Whether or not our neighbors are actually Christians, the reality is that we still live in a very Christianized, moralistic society in terms of our culture. There's not a lot of open hostility to the Christian faith where we live. And in fact, a lot of what I said earlier, people who are likely not to be Christians at all want to stand up for Christianity because that's coexistent with their citizenship in this world many times. However, if you were to go to a place like, say, New York City, or a big city like that, or in the times I've spent in the Middle East, I've seen this, I usually have thought the same thing, living as a Christian in these places is very difficult, especially if you have a public voice in the public square. So living in Effingham County, Georgia, you're not going to get a lot of weird looks if you tell someone that you believe the Bible and that it's true and inspired by God and and, and, and infallible and all the things it intends to teach. But if you have a conversation with with the typical Manhattanite, you're going to get a sideways stare. They're going to look at you a bit strange and say, wait, you're not serious, are you? The Bible? You believe everything the Bible has to say? In fact, you're probably more likely to have a Muslim not think you're crazy for believing the Bible than you would the average Manhattanite. Why? Because by and large, Christianity has over time been so removed from that cultural environment that it's odd, it's strange, it's foreign for someone to say, yeah, I'm a Bible-believing Christian and all that comes along with that. And when that's your reality, day after day, you go to work, you do your hobbies, when you go to the gym, when you talk to people at the store, and for the most part, you're a strange person with strange beliefs, and in many cases, automatically assumed to be hateful and bigoted and narrow-minded. Man, there's a daily struggle to stand faithful in the midst of that. So maybe if you think in those terms, we can get a bit of an idea what Jesus was commending them for, And yet it went a step further because they faced persecution. That's the world the church was in then. It's the world that the church exists in in many places around the world today. Two years ago when I was in London, I was walking down a street and a girl behind me was talking on her phone very loudly, speaking to one of her friends, and she said, yeah, she was dating this guy and it was going great, but then he decided that he wanted to be a Christian and he believed the Bible and all of that stuff. It's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. I've never met anyone like that before. Listen, this is London. London. If you know anything about the Christian history in London, you should be shocked that only a few generations later, people can't even name a single Bible-believing Christian they have interactions with. 
Lord, and he knows what future generations of our own community will be saying. We must pray that the Lord would be pleased to raise up faithful believers that will stand faithfully for Christ and the Christian faith, even in the face of persecution. Well, they had that going for them in Pergamum. But Jesus also had a rebuke for them. And we see that in verses 14 through 16 in our second point this morning, where he tells them, do not become an idolater through continual compromise. You know, despite their stand for the name of Jesus, the church has not been disciplined in what it was allowing in the realm of teaching and practice within the church. Specifically, Jesus mentions people who were holding to the teachings of Balaam and even some of the Nicolaitan teaching as well. Now, you'll remember we saw back with the church in Ephesus that they hated the Nicolaitan teaching and Jesus commended them for that and he said, I hate that too. But now we get to the church in Pergamum and we see that they're adopting some of that. Well, Jesus has already said he hates it, so we know there's a problem. We don't know what this specific error was. We just know that Jesus hated it. So there's, there's no reason to speculate otherwise as to what it was. Now, this is, only to say, this is not only to say that the church should begin uh, getting rid of this teaching. It's not to say that they should persecute those who have some kind of heretical false teaching. That's not the point. The point is, though, that the church is allowing others to come inside and to distort sound doctrine into heretical teaching, and nobody's doing anything about it. Nobody's saying a word. So the whole picture you get at the church in Pergamum would have been loud and proud to make a ruckus about anything. A Christian baker's right to bake a wedding cake or not bake a wedding cake if he doesn't want to. But meanwhile, the church is promoting all-out heresy and blasphemy without a word. Do you see how twisted and wrong and hypocritical that is? Let's think about this more with the details we have. With the doctrine of Balaam that is mentioned, what is this? He said, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Do you remember the counts of Balaam in the Old Testament? Balaam was hired by Balak to curse the people of the Jews in the wilderness wanderings. And Balak was afraid that the Jews were going to come in and take over the land So Balaam was known as some kind of prophet. And he was offered a lot of money to come and and curse them in hopes that that he would put some sort of plague on them and they would be destroyed. Balaam wants to go because of the large amount of money. It's all about the money for him, but God warns him. And he says, listen, don't go. Don't do this. But eventually, God allows him to go But he says, if you go, you will only say what I tell you to say. So Balaam looks over the valley and he sees Jews spread out everywhere on the land, hundreds of thousands of them. And Balaam says, all right. Or excuse me, Balak says to Balaam, you name the price. The gold is yours. Just make sure you put a good curse on them. So Balaam goes away. He seeks the face of God. He comes back with an oracle full of praise and benediction for the Jews. And that obviously does not please Balak. 
So Balak ups the ante a little bit. He says, listen, I will give you even more money, however much money you want to make it worth it to you. Come, come over here. Maybe take a look at the Jews from this angle. Well, eventually, Balaam really does not curse them. But we're told several chapters later what he does, and it's despicable. He doesn't overtly curse them in the name of the Lord. He doesn't call down judgments on them. What he does say is he he goes to Balak and he says, Balak, listen, I'm a prophet of God. I can't curse them if God doesn't curse them. That's God's job. I can't do that. It's not magic. If God hasn't promised a curse upon them, my curse isn't going to do any good in any case. So I can't pronounce a curse on them when God hasn't done so. But I'll tell you what you can do. If this is what you want to do, I'll tell you what. If you've got problems with this people, these people, these Jews, you can just be friendly to them. Send in your most charming young women, send in your most handsome young men, and get them to intermarry. Head for a compromised religion. Get them to walk away from the things that God has promised so that they would follow after your people. Mix it all up because the fact of the matter is their God is a jealous God and if these people get involved with all kinds of manner of different stuff, you won't have to worry about a curse falling upon them because God will be angry with them and he will judge them himself. And of course, that's what happened. And eventually Balaam was destroyed because of it. So what's going on here in Pergamum? He says, you have people who hold to the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, by committing sexual immorality. Do you see? What almost certainly is going on here is there is some teaching as the voice of the church, maybe a segment of the church, openly advocating that they sort of relax their ideas about the truth, about God's word. And much more compromise with the alien teaching from outside was coming in until eventually God's wrath is threatening the whole church because they've ceased to be a church. And so we see it's possible in the name of love, in the name of truth, in the name of of Jesus' example to be so flippant in our commitment to what the Bible actually says about salvation or about the truth of heaven and how you get there and who Jesus is at the end of the day and what he's done and all, all kinds of people coming in with a teaching voice in the church who are in fact corrupting the church altogether. You know, this is why we hold such a high standard of who can and cannot teach and preach. This is why we have a confession of faith. This is why your church officers have to hold to a confession of faith. And if they don't, they won't be officers anymore. It doesn't mean they're not Christians necessarily. But it means they can't teach because it's important that what we believe is true. We believe to be true. And we shouldn't waver from that. We should continue to walk faithfully in that. So in Pergamum, the church is being rebuked for not holding its teaching voice to account. It's like Paul when he rebuked the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, basically from chapter 10 through 13, he's he's telling them, if you don't get rid of these false apostles, when I come, there will be trouble. 
You haven't seen anything yet. You're, you're responsible for getting rid of them. That is the job of the church. And if you don't, when I come, I will get rid of them. The cost of not doing so is simply too high. And so we see in verse 16, Jesus says, repent. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent. Turn away. Clean up your house. Get things straight. Repent. Stop worshiping the idols that you worship, whatever it is. These idols of compromise whether it's just being more accepting of what's going on in the world, maybe it's the things of the world that you love and want to make a part of what's going on in the church, so you're appealing to the culture around you all the more. Whatever it is, stop doing that. Repent. He says either repent and remove the false teaching or the Lord will deal severely with the church and in doing so will remove the lampstand. He will remove the light of truth. And they will be like what we saw last week, a synagogue of Satan instead of a beacon of truth. But there's a promise at the end of all of this, and we see that in verse 17. Jesus promises them, and he tells them that if they stand faithfully with Christ, they will eat forever of manna from heaven. You see that promise. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus' word will cut through the half-hearted spirituality with his double-edged sword of his tongue. But for those who are faithful, he continues to hold out his gracious, loving promise. However, it's somewhat obscure if you don't understand these references here. Recall, while the Israelites were on their wilderness wanderings after the Exodus, God fed his people with manna that came directly from heaven. It was bread that dropped from the sky. And so Jesus' response here is, I will do the same for you. I love you. I care about you. I will provide for you. You will not starve. And so the place you live might seem to be trying to starve you out, but I will give you a secret manna. Remember Jesus said something about the bread of life, the water of life. I will provide for you all that you need in me. In other words, stand firm. Don't give up. It's worth the effort. It's worth the fight. It's worth all of the loss. It's worth everything you will face in this world. I will provide for you all of your needs, no matter what. Many Christians have clung to this promise as they find themselves spiritually hungry in an alien environment. In addition, there's a promise of a white stone with a new name written on it. Pergamum's great buildings were made of of a black stone that came from the ground locally. When people wanted to put up inscriptions, they wanted to name a building or honor someone, they obtained white marble and they carved on that white marble and it was fixed to the black building and it stood out all the more clearly. So so Jesus is promising to each faithful disciple, to each one who conquers an intimate relationship with himself in which Jesus will use the secret name in which, as with lovers, remains private to those involved. 
That's the language he's using here. It's this, it's this sweetness about the relationship, the intimacy between a believer and the Lord Jesus. It's like a name you might call your husband and your wife and that only they know. It's a secret between the two of you. And it parallels with what's going on with all of the sexual immorality that's being taught within the church at Pergamum, right? It's a challenge to avoid false intimacy, false sexual promiscuity. And Jesus is saying it will be matched by an offer of genuine, real intimacy, of spiritual union with Jesus Christ Himself. It's a beautiful picture. Do you have intimate union with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have intimate communion with God? God has intimate union with His people through the Lord Jesus Christ who left His throne in heaven to come and to live the life in a world that He was alien to. To live a life in a broken world that was hostile toward Him in every way. And He lived a life fulfilling the law perfectly doing all that the Lord commanded as a covenant of works, fulfilling every obligation without fail. And in the end, was murdered, crucified on a cross. All of the sins of His people cast upon Him that He might endure the full wrath of the Father on our behalf. In exchange, that His people might receive all of the benefits of His righteous standing before the Father. And now He calls us. He calls us not to a righteousness because all of our T's are crossed and our I's dotted perfectly. And there's a tendency when we think about something like the situation in Pergamum to think, if our doctrine is not exactly right in every way across the board, then... We need to question our salvation. And so what do we do the rest of our lives? We question our salvation if I don't know if I'm right. Now certainly there are very clear things in the Scriptures that we must believe. And we must believe in the way that the Scriptures teach us. But we must remember who Christ is and why He came. He came that by faith in Him alone we might have salvation. Our righteousness is Christ's righteousness not our own doctrinal righteousness. Yes, we want to be right. Yes, we want to know the truth. Yes, we should strive to know the truth all the more. But part of that truth is knowing that we come to Christ by faith and faith alone. Brothers and sisters, in this world, we must be faithful to stand up and proclaim that Jesus is Lord in every sector of society And we cannot back down in the face of persecution. But let us never be so concerned about how Jesus is being talked about out there that we forget to pay attention to how Jesus is being talked about in here. The church is the pillar and buttress of truth. We must never forget that. Stand faithful. Stand tall. You're with Christ. And He is the forever King no matter what happens on this earth. Let's always strive to get that right. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to Redeemer Baptist Church.